in my talk today, I'm going to explore the rejection of sugar and milk by coffee enthusiasts in Sao Paulo, um, as central to the process of becoming a specialty coffee consumer. Um, and so I'm going to ask what this refusal to take milk and sugar with one's coffee means in Brazil's current developmental context and its growing problem with obesity, while also considering the historic connections between milk, sugar, and coffee in Brazil. Um, for reasons of time, because I cannot keep you here all day, I will primarily focus on coffee and sugar, but milk will make a few appearances. And I ultimately propose that against normative standards of coffee drinking in Brazil, taking one's coffee black and unsweetened makes a powerful statement about cosmopolitan and modern aspirations, and this pure coffee serves as an identity marker among coffee enthusiasts. And so drawing on participant narratives about personal transformations from traditional to specialty coffee, um, and some of the marketing and health campaigns by coffee companies and trade associations, I'm going to trace the processes through which consumer identity can be expressed in the language and experience of absence, and which in certain developmental contexts, like contemporary Brazil, absence is not equal to deprivation. And so this work on sugar comes out of my DFIL field work, which I conducted over 13 months, primarily in the city of Sao Paulo, a city of 12 million people, more than 20 million if you count the wider metropolitan area, and you will see later on that I, I think you should. Um, and Sao Paulo City is the capital of the state of the same name. Um, I will explore it a little bit more depth, but it is effectively illegal to import foreign coffees into Brazil. And so my field work was focused on understanding how Brazilian specialty coffee consumers engaged with coffee, which is held in much academic literature to be the first truly globalized product, when it is actually traded and consumed on an exclusively national level, removed from many of these exotic, like, exotic narratives um, that tend to surround it in countries which only import it. So I set out to research coffee, which I had really conceived of as this independent um, independent entity, but it turns out that where coffee is in Brazil, so too is sugar. So back when I was first living in Brazil in 2012, I lived in the northeastern city of Recife, and I was working in a natural history museum there. And it is often said that Sao Paulo was built on coffee, but Recife was built on sugar. And before sugarcane is harvested, the fields are burnt, and this removes the stalk's outer leaves and facilitates the harvest. And during harvest season, in the fields that reach inland from the coastal city of Hisifi, the burning cane lights the night sky, purple. It is sticky, it is sweet, the air leaves you with a very unsettled feeling. Sugar appeared in my doctoral field work four days after arriving in Sao Paulo, as I sketched the interior of a cafe and noted where on the counters and the tables the sugar canisters were. From that moment on, in my field notes, it became my constant sweet shadow, trailing me always like the smoke of a cane field at night. And so today, I will begin with a social and historical contextualization, touching on the political economy of Brazil in order to show these long-standing linkages between coffee and sugar, and yes, milk too, before moving on to an exploration of just how common it is to have sweetened coffee. Once that's been established, I'll move on to the rise of specialty coffee in Brazil, Specialty coffee is high-end, high-quality coffee with unique sensory characteristics. It is basically what your caffeinated foodies drink. 
And the way that specialty coffee enthusiasts are encouraged to drink their coffee without any additives in order to better appreciate the natural and inherent characteristics of the coffee itself, unmitigated and uninterrupted, is a marked contrast with normal coffee consumption in Brazil, where coffee is often brewed with sugar already dissolved in the water. So whether absent or present, coffee still maintains an enduring relationship with sugar. Coffee is always imagined with sugar or the absence of sugar in mind. Specialty coffee and specialty coffee connoisseurs are defined just as much, perhaps even more, through the rejection of sugar than through any positive characteristic. Absence, in this case, becomes not about deprivation, loss, or scarcity, but about choice, social aspiration, and mobility, and also changing dialogues on health. So milk enters the picture here, too, as the Brazilian public renegotiates how they relate to calorific beverages in light of an increasing obesity, which has gone hand in hand with its recent economic development and an increase in the availability of ultra-processed foods. Then, following on from this discussion of absence, I will explore two separate campaigns, one which is spearheaded by a trade industry group and one by a single coffee company, which aim to cultivate more coffee consumers and ultimately to sell more coffee uh, through narratives of public and personal health. Uh, this section has maybe my favorite slide I have ever put together, so hold on to your hats, people. It's going to be super good, okay? Um, and then from there, we're going to roll on into the conclusion, and then you can finally flee. So if you're happy with this outline, um, let's roll. Let's start where I hear you ought to start with some context. So it is very difficult to overstate the prevalence of coffee within Brazilian quotidian experience, both historically and today. Prior even to the 20th century, the enormous quantities of coffee consumed by Brazilians were remarked on by foreigners. My favorite 1894 report in the New York Times decrees that, quote, the whole country is perpetually in a state of semi-intoxication on coffee. Men, women, and children alike, at all hours of day and night, in season and out, everybody literally guzzles it. And slave owners were once instructed that the slaves, soon after they wake up, should have well-made and sweetened coffee, the equivalent of two cups, this coffee should be made with a clean selection of beans, free from dirt, and should be roasted well. Several of my participants who did not grow up into the middle class into which they have now ascended recalled how coffee was present in their monthly welfare provisions from the state, often serving as a meal replacement and a source of energy in the mornings when there wasn't enough food for them to eat before going to school. And in fact, the term for breakfast in Brazilian Portuguese is café de manhã, that's coffee of the morning. And the rest of Latin America uses the Spanish desayuno, related to the French déjeuner, meaning lunch, and that's petit déjeuner for breakfast. Continental Portuguese corresponds with this French construction of breakfast, calling itself pequeno almoço, or little lunch. To be clear, a Brazilian breakfast, except for among the exceedingly impoverished, as just mentioned, does contain more than coffee, bread, fruit, perhaps some cold meats, but it isn't really breakfast. You haven't really started your day until you've had your coffee. And Brazilian Portuguese stands alone, as far as I am aware, in having incorporated coffee into a meal name. 
Moreover, Café de Marian does not have its own verb, as is the, other, is the case with the other meal names, as you will see, to eat dinner, to eat lunch, have their own verb, jantar and almosar, but one drinks one's breakfast. This further associates, uh, strengthens this association between breakfast and this beverage of coffee. And yes, mornings across the country start with mothers and grandmothers making coffee for the family, typically in a concentration which is much stronger than what we um, over here in Europe and North America are accustomed to, but then this is served with milk and sugar to dilute this bitterness. It is consumed morning, afternoon, and to my great distress and constant sleeplessness after dinner and before bed. <coughs> Coffee is available for free in thermoses and carafes in nearly every office, waiting room, and petrol station. Small disposable plastic cups are provided next to these thermoses, and yes, more often than not, the water is boiled with sugar such that the coffee is sweetened from the moment that it is brewed. And midway through field work, I was taken ill, and when I passed out after a blood draw, it was not water or juice that the nurse gave me. She had my husband support me out into the corridor and to the capsule coffee machine, leaving us with instructions on how to make a restorative coffee. Brazil's coffee consumption has risen over 40% since 1990, and it is either on track to overtake the United States as the world's biggest coffee-consuming market by the end of this year, or it already has. Um, estimates of how much coffee each country in the world consume vary a little bit depending on the specific metrics um, that you are using, but any way you cut it, Brazil is consuming a lot of coffee. So I'd like to draw your attention now to the first nationwide dietary survey, which was conducted in Brazil in 2008 and 2009 by the Brazilian Institute for Geography and Statistics. An analysis of the more than 34,000 responses found that across all ages, genders, income levels, and geographic regions, coffee was the second most commonly consumed food. Whoops. Well, that's where we wanted to go anyway. So, and while Brazil is now the largest consumer of coffee, it is perhaps best known as the world's largest producer of coffee. Coffee is only one of Brazil's main agricultural outputs, and coffee, milk, and sugar have been linked throughout its history. The wealthy, who controlled the means of agricultural production for all three of these goods, were the ruling oligarchic class who dominated the political and economic life of the nation. These legacies continue today. And Brazil's identity as a provider of raw exports for other nations was laid out from the beginning of its integration into the European world system with the arrival of the Portuguese in 1500. And Celso Furtado's celebrated 1959 book, The Economic Development of Brazil, which is really not as boring as it sounds. It's actually super great. You should probably all read it. Um, it describes the colonization of Brazil by Portugal as from the beginning an agricultural colonization venture one which was driven exclusively by economic interest. Settlement was very much secondary. It was promoted only in order to facilitate and expand agricultural production. Indeed, Brazil's name itself comes from the first extractive enterprise occurring in the colony, the harvest of Pau Brazil, or Brazilwood trees. Next, after 1520, came the production of sugar, fueling the very first of Brazil's many export cycles and based on vast monocultural plantations which utilized slave labor and which set the stage for unequal income distribution by concentrating wealth and land in the hands of a very limited few 
a characteristic of Brazil maintained to the present day. And as the rest of the Caribbean colonies overtook Brazil in sugar production near the end of the 18th century, Brazil then switched to become the world's biggest producer of coffee, filling in the void left by the destruction of Haitian coffee plantations during the decade of war preceding its independence. Coffee production in Brazil at this time had now spread to the southeast of the country, which provided better growing conditions climate-wise for coffee than in the northern areas in which it had first been cultivated when it was introduced to Brazil. And once in the southeast regions of the country, its wide-scale cultivation potentials became very clear. So by this point, less than 100 years after coffee's introduction onto Brazilian soil, coffee production for export was Brazil's single most important economic activity. By 1890, at the dawn of the Brazilian Republic, coffee was responsible for 65% of Brazil's exports. Reflecting the continuation of unequal wealth distribution, which began during the early colonial period, in that same year, 1890, 80% of the population lived on the margin of subsistence, while 20% controlled almost all wealth in the country. And as Brazil moved into the 20th century and began its extensive process of industrialization, the coffee economy became the primary center of capital accumulation in Brazil, with Sao Paulo, the city, as its hub. And while Sao Paulo's state was the stronger of the two, the neighboring state of Minas Gerais, which was dominated by the dairy industry, and because it has lovely plains and lots of space for pasture, this also became a center of political power and of the landed gentry, to the extent that the political period between 1890 and 1930 is known as café con leche, coffee with milk, which is also how one refers to the beverage of the same name. So, throughout the 20th century, Sao Paulo, through the capital accrued from the coffee trade, developed into the financial heart of Latin America. And our friend Claude Levi-Strauss, writing in 1935 on his time in the city, notes that, quote, the city is growing so fast it is impossible to obtain a map of it. Today, Sao Paulo is the largest city in the Southern Hemisphere. But the coffee that is consumed in Brazil is generally of a very low quality, and this is due to a combination of factors, but all of these effectively boil down to centuries of coffee exportation being so central to the Brazilian economy, which leads to a situation in which the highest quality Brazilian coffee is exported and purchased by foreign buyers. What is consumed domestically is, in a very real sense, what is left over, which brings us to specialty coffee. So specialty coffee is a booming sector in Brazil. Its com consumption has risen at an average rate of 18.1% um, per year since 2012. It today represents over 5% of total coffee consumption in the country. And specialty coffee in its broadest definition refers to any coffee that is rated 80 points and above on an international grading scale. The higher the points awarded for the coffee, the higher the quality of the coffee it ought to be. It is also the preferred and most commonly used term by practitioners within the industry to describe what they do and the product that they work with. Specialty is pretty much as much of an abstract construction as an indicator of coffee's material quality. It requires constant redefinitions and renegotiations in order to continue to situate it as special in relation to the rest of the consumer market. It is a socially determined and contextual, holistic, 
product experience. Um, these are just a few pictures from uh, Taco, which was the coffee shop in which I primarily worked in Sao Paulo. Um, and so you can see there is sort of a, an aesthetic you might recognize um, if you've ever been to any coffee shop here in Oxford or in London. And um, likewise, it does stand in fairly marked contrast to the other businesses around it. So in the case of Brazil, <coughs> excuse me, as with many other coffee producing nations, it is effectively illegal to import green, that is the raw unroasted coffee, into the country. And this is primarily on sanitation grounds, and this is so as to not introduce any pests or diseases to the Brazilian coffee crop, which would essentially potentially decimate the economy. So it is expensive and inefficient to get roasted coffee in from abroad, so it is very rare to see. And the infrastructural systems with the Brazilian postal um, system and its many, many problems uh, means that if one does order some roasted coffee from abroad and it, it does actually arrive, it is probably going to be well past its sort of peak point of freshness. Um, it may have been lost in the post for some months. Um, I am still waiting on a package that I believe was shipped to me in 2017. So while the very highest quality specialty coffees rarely do stay in Brazil for this internal consumption, there is a growing movement to retain and consume at least some of the specialty grade coffees which are produced by Brazil. In every urban area in Brazil, there are now many specialty coffee establishments which are serving the best available Brazilian coffee. In Sao Paulo alone, there are over 50 such establishments that we can class as specialty coffee. The first one was founded in 2009, so that is some pretty impressive growth. All right, now we know a little bit about Brazil, we know a little bit about specialty coffee, and we know about sort of these historical intersections between coffee, sugar, and milk. Um, so I do want to explore how these are linked in contemporary consumption practices uh, before I introduce the kind of uh, switch that people make to specialty coffee and how this is often enacted through the absence of additives. So coffee and sugar have indeed been wed throughout Brazilian history and it really should come as no surprise that um, we are often finding them together in the cup. Coffee with sugar, I really cannot stress enough, and if I could take you all on a field trip and, and just show you experientially, coffee with sugar is the absolute normal way of consuming coffee in Brazil. And I think there is a bigger discussion to be had, perhaps on another day, about the Brazilian sweet tooth and this penchant for adding sugar to everything, uh, because I am constantly, constantly upsetting the mother of the family that I often live with in Brazil, because I insist that she doesn't add sugar to the fresh fruit juice that she makes me in the morning. And she's, she's very worried about me because of this. But we are just going to stick to coffee today, no matter how great fruit juice is. And um, it is so normal that over the course of my entire year of doing field work, I only met two people who did not take sugar in their coffee when they were growing up. One told me that she never had it with sugar. My mom drank it without sugar, and so sweetness never appeared in the taste of coffee in my home or experience. The second said that she never drank it with sugar, but that she always put a ton of milk in to cut the bitterness. So remember the National Dietary Survey that I mentioned earlier. 
A research team at the University of Brasilia analyzed the coffee-specific responses and determined that only 1% of participants did not take sugar or sweetener in any form with their coffee. A second research team from the State University of Rio de Janeiro, working with this same data, determined coffee beverages to be the second major source of total sugar in the Brazilian diet, surpassed only by juices, and soft drinks trail in third place, but they are rapidly catching up to coffee. This Rio-based team in another paper determined that calorie-added coffee beverages, so that is brewed coffee that's been sweetened with sugar or you know, other calorific sweeteners or coffee that is served with milk, um, these calorie-added coffee beverages were the beverage group that contributed most to daily caloric intake that came via liquid. So within this context of the very, essentially, inescapable marriage of coffee and sugar, and the also not infrequent presence of milk, many of my participants started to describe their shift away from the standard low-quality coffee that is served in Brazil as stemming, at least indirectly, from health-related matters. One woman, Teresa, realized that she had put on some weight after leaving university, and she really wanted to get toned to impress this guy she had her eyes on, so she started religiously hitting the gym, and then she cut out all meat, dairy, and added sugar from her life. After a stroke, Ricardo's doctor told him he was going to have to radically rethink how and what he consumed in terms of food and what sort of lifestyle he led. And Joao was powered almost entirely by energy drinks for several years at the high-powered law firm he worked for until he found himself with a perpetual tremor and a stomach ache that he could not shake. So he gradually switched to sugared coffee before eventually weaning himself off the sugar too because, as he discovered, his stomach still hurt. And then, in so doing, all of them discovered that the coffee they'd been drinking was something that they actually didn't like the taste of at all. Disgusting, nauseating, horrible. These are three of the most common words I heard used to describe how participants felt about the taste of coffee once they had nixed the sugar. And a concern about sugar and or milk's health implications was the trigger for the majority of participants to stop putting it in their coffee. But from that point, it then became a matter of flavor and of pleasure. So some participants did skip this concern about sugar and health, and they just went straight into couching their rejection of sugar on the grounds that it did muddy the flavor of the coffee. But reducing the milk and the sugar in one's coffee, be it for health reasons such as sugar is poison, or I was getting a lot of migraines, so I started an elimination diet, cutting out all possible triggers, or even I'm lactose intolerant. This rejection of sugar and other additives was a very essential part of the transformation to becoming a specialty coffee drinker. As one person put it to me, as soon as I had a specialty coffee, I discovered the natural complexity of this beverage, and I didn't want to ruin it anymore with sugar. Another person told me, I know we get a lot of sugar anyway in our diet, I'm not exactly cutting out sugar, but it's not really something I want to add more of, you know? With specialty coffee, it's easy to avoid. For those who did not cut sugar for explicitly health reasons, this cut was often born of a slow realization that the presence of sugar was impacting their ability to taste the coffee, and they were curious about what there was to taste underneath all of the sweetness. 
Others first made the switch to gourmet, which is the sort of high-end coffee that is available in supermarkets, sort of one step down from this very swanky, very, very high-quality specialty coffee. And it often served as a transitional product for people. Um, or sometimes they jumped straight to specialty coffees, usually on the recommendations of people in their social circles who were already drinking specialty coffee. And they eventually weaned themselves off sugar, generally to discover what this coffee tastes like, but also not infrequently because of a sense that they were now deviating from the expected norms of the specialty coffee community, as in one woman who told me, that barista guy seems disappointed in me when I add sugar. <coughs> so on a popular coffee blog, there is a post that suggests five easy steps to get to the point where you can have your coffee without sugar. Step one is to diminish the quantity of sugar you are using by half. Step two is to supplement your coffee by adding other ingredients like cinnamon or cardamom, uh, but not syrups that might be sweetened. Uh, step three, consume good quality coffees. This is listed as the most important step for one who wants to stop sweetening coffee with sugar. Step four is to try different modes of preparation. If you cannot manage to drink an espresso without sugar, try another method like drip coffee. This coffee is smoother, the website advises. And five, sit back and reflect on the benefits of these four steps for your health. So, <laughs> step five is my favorite, definitely. But um, yeah, also I have tried adding just straight cinnamon to coffee and I, I would not advise it. I, I would skip step two, but that's just me. So from this point, when you have uh, gone through your five steps and you have successfully removed sugar from your coffee, the leap then was often very simple to specialty coffee, as most of the drinkers of unsweetened regular coffee discovered that it could be too bitter to be enjoyable. They then started seeking out these better quality coffees um, in the hopes of finding more natural sweetness. And so, yes, this was often preceded by either a social contact telling them, oh, there's this cool new coffee shop, they do coffees, they, I hear they're kind of sweet and you don't need to add sugar, or simply by online research. And the common trajectory was indeed to first try out gourmet coffee um, and then from there move on into specialty. And once this switch to specialty had been made, this identity of specialty coffee drinker was deeply enmeshed with the notions of normative forms of coffee consumption, particularly regarding our old friend here, sugar. So the absence of sugar itself became very central to defining what specialty coffee is. So throughout my fieldwork, I asked people to define for me what they understood specialty coffee to be. And by far the most common responses were based on this sort of international grading scale that we have, the standards that are set by the Specialty Coffee Association. Um, and so this was generally spoken about with some variation of, you know, it's a coffee that scored more than 80 points on the SCA scale. But when I asked people to expand on this definition and tell me what is special about specialty coffee, why might it be a coffee that scores that high, um, sugar, or rather the lack thereof, appeared time and time again. A specialty coffee is a coffee of very <coughs> high quality and which is above 80 points. It's rich in aroma and flavors, and it is sweet enough already that you don't need to add sugar. 
More simply even, it's coffee one doesn't put sugar in. It is not uncommon to find high-end specialty coffee shops in Europe and the US. I can direct you to several in London that do not have sugar available for their consumers and their clients to use. And this enforces the appreciation of coffee's natural flavors and characteristics. Um, to date, I have yet to encounter a single cafe in Brazil that does this. So I asked Hidalfo, the owner of Taco, the cafe that I showed you pictures of before, um, I asked him why they still kept sugar available on all the tables, as you can see here in these lovely little packets. Um, and he told me there would be a riot if he did not. Maybe, he explained, in 10 years we could do that. But right now, because not everyone who comes in here is a dedicated consumer, we can't scare away the people who are transitioning. People expect sugar with their coffee. We have to give it, but maybe we can gently suggest that they do not use it, he said. So, Sorry, is that yeah. is it iced coffee? It's in the yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Most people still drink hot coffee, even though it's really, really hot. And actually, the further north in Brazil you go, the warmer it is. Actually, the more normal it seems to be to still drink hot coffee. I think it's generally temperature regulating to keep your insides sort of closer to the outside. Um, so different cafes did have different strategies for gently encouraging customers to at least you know, give the coffee a sip or a try before they added sugar. So at one specialty coffee shop, a sign perched on the counter and it asked, have you ever tried it without sugar? Our coffee was sweetened naturally. And also the phrase that they are using to mean naturally, they could have used the word naturally, but this actually means on the tree or from the tree, which is another sort of idiomatic way that you can express naturalness. And um, coffee does grow on trees, so entirely appropriate here. Um, but I, I rather liked that. <coughs> so, well, specialty coffee is defined in a positive sense in the global specialty coffee industry, in that it is a thing itself. It was defined largely in these negative terms by Brazilians in relation to what it is not. And I found this reminding me of Derrida's assertion about how the meaning of phenomena always derive from describing other signifiers. Meaning is not in the phenomenon itself, but in what it is not. And so the absence of sugar in the drinks of Brazilian specialty coffee consumers presents an analytical opportunity for approaching the meaning of absence in anthropology. This contributes to recent strands of research which do not conceptualize absence as something necessarily linked with an idea of loss, but as the archeologist Lynn Meskel puts it, the possibility of a future-driven strategy to reimagine oneself, one's community, and its practices. Our social relations are mediated by and performed around both what is there and what is not there. And the absence of sugar and milk, though less strongly so with milk, does have profound impacts on how the consumption of coffee is experienced by its drinkers and interpreted by others in Brazil. And so craft beer is another foodie type scene that is really exploding in popularity in Sao Paulo. Um, very many of the people I worked with were also craft beer enthusiasts. I did a lot of my interviews in sort of upscale beer locations, you know, not a bad way to do your fields work. <laughs> um, drank more beer that year than I probably ever hope to again. Um, 
But the wheat, um, and if I could you know, presume to call it such, the presence of absence um, is really, really apparent among the craft beer connoisseurs who have adopted beba menos, beba mayor, drink less, drink better, as their slogan, and which many of my crossover coffee and beer fans often brought up to me as a good way to approach drinking coffee as well. Here, absence is rendered as the absence of excess. Absence is not nothing. It becomes a powerful statement about class and access to high-quality goods. A large bottle of craft beer in Sao Paulo might set you back 30 reais or more, while the price of the same size bottle of a standard beer would be less than 10 reais. Similarly, an espresso in a high-end specialty coffee establishment in Sao Paulo might cost three to four times what it would at the bakery down the street. Absence here presupposes knowledge about what constitutes good coffee, beer, or other consumer goods. Absence becomes a boundary. And so when the consumers in Sao Paulo reject the low-quality, sweet, and calorific coffee in favor of this pure and high-quality coffee, they make visible and very political something which is typically very normal, very background, and essentially banal. Traditional Brazilian coffee was described to me by one participant as like drinking water for us, just something part of the air. In part because coffee is so ubiquitous in Brazil and normally so cheap, it is something that can be shared across all social classes and is expected to be enjoyed by all members of society. It has historically been seen as something of an equalizer, something translatable across the infinite varieties and inequalities of Brazilian experience. But opting instead for expensive upscale coffee, however, shifts what previously appeared to be a social equalizer into something much more fraught. It um, possesses the possibility now of shining light onto divisions that were heretofore smoothed over with a nice small cup of coffee that we could share. Similarly, there is still a lingering sense of health privilege in not needing to add milk as a matter of nutritional and calorific necessity. And this makes black coffee anything but neutral. So the absence of sugar among specialty coffee consumers looks to the future. It reimagines their Brazil as not only the world's provider of these raw agricultural goods, but also as a cosmopolitan and connected nation where these proletarian hunger killers uh, to use Sidney Mintz's phrase, are no longer such a necessity in a world of consumer choice. So this takes us to the sort of health and development context of Brazil, um, because here the question of coffee and its additives take on even more salient implications. Coffee consumption by children is very common across Brazil, uh, but studies suggest that it is much higher in food insecure families. A number of public health initiatives uh, throughout the years, which have tar been targeted at low-income families, have encouraged more coffee consumption, particularly among children, in part because of this assumed co-presence of milk and sugar, which would provide some level of energy. So it's difficult and I think ultimately kind of futile to try and understand specialty coffee consumption in Brazil entirely through theories of gastronomy or haute cuisine and class that have largely been developed in Europe because there are a lot of these histories of acute deprivation and starvation maybe hundreds of years in the past, not to say that they are any less horrific. 
Status food consumption in Brazil, though, still continues to include a significant quantity of protein, typically meat or fish, as a continuation of these very recent realities of deprivation. And to be sure, Brazil is not at all unique in fine dining being characterized by variety in access to foods of greater nutritive value. Uh, Alan Ward, for instance, notes that, quote, the glorification of variety is a primary vehicle of the intensification of commodity culture. But until very recently in Brazil, the lower classes were often unable to sufficiently feed their families to prevent malnourishment and even starvation. It is little wonder, I think, with such a recent history of food insecurity and acute malnutrition, that sugar and milk have remained their enduring relationship with coffee. Remember our old friend, the National Dietary Survey? Well, he's back again. And those respondents in the highest quartile of income had the greatest odds of consuming unsweetened or low-calorie coffee beverages. The lower a participant's income, the greater the odds of coffee beverages serving as an important source of calories. For those in these lower socioeconomic groupings, coffee, with its attendant milk and sugar, still seems to provide an essential part of food intake despite the fact that Brazil has gone through unprecedented economic development over the last three decades. And the rise of specialty coffee consumption also overlaps with major social changes, which you know, between 2003 and 2011, almost 40 million Brazilians moved above the poverty line and into the middle and the working classes. Yet this increase in economic well-being among the Brazilian populace also came with an influx of ultra-processed foods and an increase in obesity across all socioeconomic groups in a pattern that we will see is familiar with other developing countries. So why then is coffee with milk and sugar still such a caloric staple given the access to new and different forms of calorie choice? On that front, I do not presume to have an answer for you yet. The state of obesity research in Brazil is still developing and very similar to that being conducted elsewhere in Latin America, research on the risk factors and socioeconomic characteristics of obesity, particularly in urban settings, are returning inconsistent and often very contradictory findings. We don't know. But what we can say, however, is obesity has increased, apparently, across all socioeconomic groups. And perhaps more importantly for the research that I do, um, more important than the you know, actual numerical metrics, is the participants that I worked with, they believed obesity had increased for both rich and poor alike, and that this was somehow a side effect of development and the economic progress of the nation. And so this takes us to my favorite slide of all time because I could have come up with a few photos of groups of children drinking giant mugs of coffee, but I am absolutely obsessed with the low-budget coffee mascots that you find all over Brazil, and so I just wanted to present a selection of a few of my favorites that were uh, associated with this program, and I very much hope you enjoy your nightmares tonight. So. Earlier public health campaigns were focused on getting coffee to children for its ability to add calories and sustain a sort of basic level of living. Um, today's programs actually tend to frame themselves in aiding the aversion of obesity. Um, anyway, this program with all of its amazing creepy coffee mascots is called Coffee in School Lunches, Health in School. 
And this is a program which began in 2007 and is sponsored by the Brazilian Coffee Industry Association. It is aimed at children ages 6 to 18 living in Sao Paulo and Minas Gerais states. Uh, not necessarily in the major metropolitan areas though, but in, in some of them. Um, but it does not operate in Sao Paulo City. Um, and it brought nutritionists into schools to teach about healthy eating habits and to, direct quote here, stimulate the daily consumption of coffee with milk among students and ultimately suggesting that, quote, daily consumption of up to four cups of coffee per day by young people with or without milk has the capacity to produce benefits in the emotional state of youth, prevent or diminish childhood obesity, depression, and alcohol consumption. Participants receive a charming little book called Coffee is Great, and it covers the history of coffee in Brazil, and they also receive a second booklet about the health benefits of coffee. <coughs> And all of my analysis of the program's materials and its press coverage, sugar only appears two places. Occasionally in press coverage where they are thanking um, sponsors for providing all of the supplies for the programs in schools. They thank them for providing coffee, cups, spoons, milk, and sugar for the children. And there is a passing mention in one of the booklets of coffee having no calories when consumed without milk or sugar. Now, our second example heads in a slightly different direction. Last year, the coffee company Cafe Santa Monica, which is a gourmet coffee brand, one of those high-end supermarket brands, launched a major marketing initiative centered around health narratives. Its tagline, Cafe Sem Azúcar, coffee without sugar. So they have a really snappy website which warns of the bitter consequences of too much sugar and a newsletter you can sign up to and they will send you all kinds of recipes and tips about your health uh, far too frequently, so actually don't sign up. Um, but Café Samasukar promotes unsweetened coffee as an easy way for Brazilians to break their sugar addiction. At 150 grams per day per person, they do, after all, consume almost three times the global average of 57 grams. And they warn that quote, spoonful by spoonful of sugar, you can gain excess weight, acquire diabetes or cardiovascular diseases. Less sugar is more health. And how to go about getting unsweetened coffee and getting to like it? Well, buy higher quality coffee, of course, by Cafe Santa Monica. Their marketing coffee copy states that because of the acidity of most coffees, one can only drink many of them when they're accompanied with sugar or sweetener. The alternative in this case is gourmet or specialty coffee, which already possesses, in a natural and intrinsic form, an accentuated sweetness, more chocolatey notes, and less acidity when compared to traditional coffee. So this initiative starts with health discourse, but then, much like my own participants, then moved into a dialogue about flavor. So they say that sugar distorts the flavor of things in a negative fashion. And it moves this health-focused narrative into a moment of intersection with the world of coffee connoisseurship, distinction, and refinement. And so while the first program, the Coffee in Schools, actively encourages milk with coffee but hardly mentions sugar, uh, this one, Coffee Without Sugar, focuses on removing sugar without concerning itself very much with milk. Either way, both programs establish how far from the norm it is to have your coffee plain, and contestations around additives, health, and class aspirations. 
In these two initiatives, we see a tension between two very different modes of coffee consumption that are both being promoted in the supposed interest of public health. <coughs> so one is encouraging coffee with calorific additives, primarily via milk, but tacitly with the, <coughs> with the tacit acknowledgement that there will be the presence of sugar as an easy and cheap way to provide underserved communities with enough calories for survival, if not exactly well-rounded nutrition, in, in a healthier way than sodas might, thereby averting the crisis of childhood obesity. Absence here is present in the threat of undernutrition and starvation, which have marked Brazilian history up until the last 30 years or so. And the other seeks to warn people and wean them off these additives, also in the name of health and as to rectify existing obesity or stop it in the future. And absence here arrives in the guise of new challenges of obesity and absence as a necessary restriction. Speaking both to the diversity and inequality in Brazilian lives, here is manifest, <coughs> manifest with a very deceptively simple cup of coffee. I see in both these campaigns a very genuine desire to do good by the populace and of course sell more coffee, but which still fail to take into account the wider structural issues here. <coughs> so these structural issues, for instance, might cover which families can provide their children with a well-rounded breakfast, who has the time and freedom to consider the ways in which excess sugar might be harmful to their health and tailor their actions accordingly. <coughs> Man, I've been fighting this for days. Okay, fortunately for me and my cough, this is going to bring us very nearly to the end. <coughs> so, to sum up, I have presented an abbreviated history of coffee and sugar and milk in Brazil, looked at its everyday prevalence and the enduring and strong association between coffee and sugar by exploring ideas of health as in contrast with sugar consumption, I raised the personal narratives about transformations from traditional to specialty coffee drinker, thereby allowing for an examination of the processes through which consumer identity can be expressed through the language and the experience of absence. And absence need not be considered in terms of loss or deprivation. Agency and choice, too, have a role to play in the construction of absence. Finally, by looking at these two contrasting coffee campaigns, which frame themselves in terms of health, the roles of sugar, milk, and coffee are placed into a context in terms of national development and obesity narratives. So, by way of final conclusion, I want to share the story of one young woman that I worked with and I drank a lot of coffee with during field work. <coughs> if I can stop coughing long enough to tell you. I wanted to tell you this because I think it is very emblematic of many of the themes that I touched on this afternoon. So, Patricia grew up in the periferia, or the periphery, the urban sprawl that spills out from Sao Paulo, and which makes Sao Paulo actually the city of 20 million. The architect and design critic Justin McGurk has described these sprawling fringes, fringes as revealing a city that is still very much in the making, still somehow raw, it is a place where the sacrifices that people make for access to the city are written into the landscape, into the fabric of their homes. Cities that grow this fast grow in an, in an unconsolidated way, 
And so while the periphery is full of pathos, it is also full of potential. And so while peripheries include favelas, they constitute about um, roughly a third of the housing in Sao Paulo's peripheries, there are also more formal settlements and neighborhoods. And it was in one of these very far-flung, lower-class neighborhoods that Patricia was raised. As a child, she lived in what she described to me as a real apartment, just a shitty one. And she lived there with her mother, grandmother, and younger brother. At no point in any of our conversations throughout the year did she ever mention a father. Studious, she was determined not to remain in the periphery for the rest of her life. She stayed in high school even after most of her friends had dropped out. And in the second year of high school for her, in 2006, Starbucks opened their first store in Brazil. It was in the high-end shopping mall in the upscale neighborhood of Itaim Bibi. And she told me, I had to go. I had to see it for myself and try these drinks that I always saw everyone in the American shows holding. I didn't really care much about the drink. What I wanted was that green and white cup. I wanted to pretend I was an American star. So she saved her money. And one Saturday, she spent over two hours on the bus making her way to the aggressively upscale shopping mall, Shopping Morubi. She had never been anywhere as chic, and she worried that someone would know where she was from and tell her that she did not belong there. But she mustered up her courage, and she ordered what she described as some kind of big vanilla latte thing <coughs> with a lot of whipped cream, the biggest size they had. And so finally, she had her cup. And holding onto her cup long after she had finished the drink, careful not to crush it, she made the long voyage back to the northeast fringes of Sao Paulo's metropolitan region, where she tenderly washed out the coffee residue. And the next day, or two days afterwards, because this was a Saturday, whatever, the next school day, she brought it with her to school. And it was filled only with water, but she placed it prominently on her desk the Starbucks Green Mermaid facing forward, a bold assertion that she, Patricia, was not going to be stuck in the periphery forever. She began to repeat her trips to the Starbucks nearly every month, <coughs> each time picking up a new cup. And she did eventually make her way out of the periphery and into the center. She earned a place at a public university and inspired by how powerful the image of the Starbucks siren was for her, she wound up earning a degree in marketing. And Patrice eventually stopped drinking the Starbucks Frappuccinos and she turned to espresso, taken as you will not be surprised to hear, with plenty of sugar, because she found a cool group of friends and they were inspired by the European movies they watched. And this was in her final year of high school when she started taking up espresso drinking. Later in university, she and her boyfriend started circulating around different coffee shops in central Sao Paulo on the weekend and it was just kind of to see if they wanted to do their homework there or not. But, she says, one day, we went to one shop and they had a little sign that encouraged you not to put sugar in your coffee before you tried it. So I didn't put sugar in that time. It had never occurred to me to not put sugar. And it was completely different. Like, not even the same beverage, I thought. That was also good because I started gaining a lot of weight in university. So it was an easy way to be healthier. And the day I first met Patricia, she was in her laptop on the back corner of Taco, the cafe nearest my home in Sao Paulo, where she was working remotely for the market research firm that employed her. And each table in Taco has those little cups filled with little packets of sugar that I showed you. 
but I noticed that she had moved hers to the next table over, clearing space both for her laptop and for the filter coffee, coffee she was sipping from served black. Thank you.